the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning with the second verse. Glory, Glory to, to you, o Lord. Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my beloved Son, this is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to Him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, He ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, on this day when it is gray and misty and gloomy outside, we thank you for the transfiguration of your Son on that mountaintop in days of old. We thank you for the light of your glory and for enabling us to be able to experience it. We lift up to you now all of our burdens, all those things which weigh heavy on our minds and hearts, all those people for whom we have special concern. We ask this day for your healing presence and touch, that you would be a balm of Gilead, not only for us, but indeed for all creation. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this morning is the first lesson assigned for today from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, namely 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It is the uh, famous story of Elijah and Elisha. 2 Kings 2, verses 1 through 12. My sermon title for today is based on Elijah's comment in verse number 10, asking a hard thing. Asking a hard thing. On the face of things, today's texts seem to be chosen and paired together because they are powerful theophanies of God. The word theophany, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, theophany, is a technical term meaning appearance or manifestation of God. The fabled burning bush, for example, on Mount Sinai, from which the Lord appeared and spoke to Moses, is an example of a theophany. Certain elements often coincide with a theophany of the Lord, namely fire, smoke, wind, cloud, and light. Our text here from the first lesson involves horses and chariots of fire, as well as a whirlwind of fire. The psalm associates with God's appearance a devouring fire and a mighty tempest. 
The second lesson from 2 Corinthians mentions the light of the gospel and God's shining in our hearts the light of the knowledge of His glory in the face of Christ. And of course, the gospel lesson for this Transfiguration Sunday includes a cloud along with the fact that Jesus' garments became glistening intensely white as no fuller on earth could bleach them. We are perhaps more accustomed to experiencing God in more subtle ways these days. But we ought not forget that in the days of yore, God often appeared in dazzling and terrifying fashion. Apart from these particularly impressive manners of God's appearance, however, I also suspect that the text may have been paired together, at least in the case of this Old Testament lesson in the Gospel account, because they are texts of transition. In the case of the Gospels, Jesus' transfiguration on that Galilean mountaintop really serves as the linchpin in three of the four narratives in which it appears. Prior to it, Jesus is teaching and performing miracles all over Galilee, and afterward, He turns His direction and attention towards Jerusalem, down south in Judea, where He will meet His fate of death. Perhaps Luke's Gospel expresses it best when its author records shortly after this transfiguration moment, when the days drew near for Jesus to be received up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. So the transition in the Gospels is largely one from joyful, unimpeded ministry to increasing controversy and dark, foreboding times ahead. Here in 2 Kings, the transition, politically speaking, is between two dynasties in the 9th century B.C., those of kings Omri and Jehu in the northern kingdom of Israel. And religiously speaking, it is the transition between the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, at this point, is tested and famous. His protege, Elisha, is neither, but rather newly called, a blank slate. He is a newbie, a rookie, wet behind the ears. Transitions are critical junctures in life, of course, not easily negotiated, conjuring up different types of emotions and anxieties. An intriguing detail about the prophet Elijah in this text, and indeed all of Scripture, is that he is one of only two people deemed worthy enough to be taken up to heaven by God while still alive without actually having to taste death. The other being the mysterious figure of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. To me, the geographical movement in this text lends itself to a heightening of the transition moment. You see there in the text, in verses 1, 2, 4, and 7, that Elijah and Elisha travel together from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and ultimately to the river Jordan. If you were to look up these otherwise unfamiliar cities on a map of ancient Israel, you would discern an interesting progression. This pair of prophets, the mentor and his protege, are moving largely from north and west in the country to south and east, essentially from the Great Sea, as the Mediterranean Sea was known at that time, inland. This geographical movement may not mean that much to you at first, obviously, until you realize that their journey is almost the exact opposite of the route the Israelites followed in their entry into and conquest and possession of the Promised Land some 300 to 400 years earlier. At that time, you may recall, 
Moses himself surveyed the entirety of the promised land, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, the Great Sea in the west to the Jordan River in the east, all from the top of Mount Nebo in Moab, just east of the Jordan River, in what today is the nation of Jordan. He died there in that place without ever entering the promised land himself. So Joshua, his assistant, assumed his mantle of leadership and led the people westward, crossing the river Jordan into the borders of the promised land at that point known as Canaan, steadily moving westward and northward, conquering towns like Jericho and Ai as they went. So the path, the route, that Elijah and Elisha traversed together this morning is very nearly the same route their ancestors took centuries earlier, except this time it's in reverse. This time they're going the opposite way. Whereas the ancient Israelites entered the promised land along this route, these two contemporary Israelites are exiting the land this way. Whereas Joshua and Caleb and company entered into blessings and security, rest and home, all of which to some degree the land symbolizes, Elijah and Elisha are leaving behind milk and honey, fruit, figs and pomegranates, and going back to the wilderness of manna, quail and water from a rock. They are crossing the same banks of the same river. And remember, it miraculously parts both times, here and centuries earlier. Only this time, instead of moving forward in an inevitable sense of victory and joy, we are headed backwards with an impending sense of defeat, despair, doom, and even death. Not every step in life is forward, my friend. Some are inevitably backward. Not every movement in life is progression. Some involve regression. One of life's fantasies, false bill of goods that are all too often bought into, is that the trajectory of life is always, always onwards and upwards. A never-ending ascent from school to career to promotion to love and marriage and happiness and riding off into the sunset together perfectly healthy only to die together peacefully in your sleep at age 95. The movement here, my friends, in this text is not from uncertainty into a comfort zone of God's promise like it was earlier. No, rather this time it is a leaving behind the comfort zone of God's promises and heading towards the desert wilderness of uncertainty. And isn't that in fact, in many ways, exactly what death entails? Here, the company of prophets warns Elisha every step of the way, every town, that his master will be taken from him, taken away. How do they know? I don't know. The fact of which he seems to be already aware. How does he know? I don't know. Talk about a walking death an accompanying of someone who is journeying towards departing this world. Elisha traveled with Elijah faithfully on such a miserable journey. The disciples did the same thing with Jesus when He set His face towards Jerusalem. We do it today with others. And others do it with us. It doesn't have to be a literal death of a person either. It oftentimes is the death of a dream or hope. The demise of a relationship or 
a certain reality. Oh, if only we could always cross the Jordan from east to west, moving upwards and onwards, conquering every obstacle in our way, overcoming every potential pitfall until we inhabit that sacred space and rest that God has for us. But life is rarely, if ever, that linear, that simple, and that straightforward for anyone. There are times, like it or not, we reverse direction. Go backwards, west to east, to a point and a place we swore we would never return. Hardly anyone ever willingly exchanges milk and honey for the barren desert wilderness of thin, flaky manna and not enough water to quench your thirst. Going from marriage to divorce is such a journey. So is going from employed to unemployed. A promotion to a demotion. From reasonable expectations to dashed hopes. From health to sickness. From harmony in your family to serious ruptures in relationships. From peace of mind to worry, anxiety, and panic. The fact, however, that the waters of the Jordan part here as miraculously as they did generations earlier, is a great and wonderful sign. It is a sign that God is as present in the exit as He was in the entry. As present when the future is foreboding as when it is hopeful. Even though the journey is oftentimes indescribably painful, it is never without God. When they finally crossed the Jordan, finally step outside the comfort zone that the promised land represents into this precarious, unknown wilderness. A blessing is extended, a request is made, and the request is honored. A blessing is extended. Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. A request is made. Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. That request is granted. Not by Elijah, but by God, who allows Elisha to witness the astonishing conclusion of this meritorious prophet's life and ministry. Elijah ascending to heaven by a whirlwind, accompanied by horses and a chariot of fire, as Elisha cries out immortally, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. A theophany which, by the way, served obviously as the inspiration for that famous spiritual, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I like the fact too, by the way, that Elisha requests a double share of Elijah's spirit. A fact which looks perhaps greedy on the face of things, but may actually just reflect his own insecurities and inadequacies. Regardless, the prophet Isaiah, a little bit later in time, will declare pardon to the city of Jerusalem by stating that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And therefore, she will receive from the Lord now a double portion of joy and blessings. For how many of you does that resonate? You feel as if you have received double for your sins. And so how sweet the blessings of a double portion in pardon, restitution, and restoration must be. 
As we conclude this text, if not this story, there seems to me to be both good news and bad news, or at least depressing news. The good news is that the fearful Elisha's request is honored. If you see this take place, Elijah says, then it shall be granted you. Elisha, of course, sees it take place. And if you read just six verses outside our concluding verse today, you will see evidence, proof positive, of that fact. Elisha now picks up his master's mantle, strikes the Jordan, again the waters part, and he crosses back over into the promised land of security and comfort. Also, he gets affirmation from the band of prophets back at Jericho, who now cry out, the spirit of Elijah rests upon Elisha as they bow to the ground before him. Moreover, Elisha will begin doing many mighty miracles himself over the course of the next 12 chapters, even one from beyond the grave. Fascinatingly, you'll have to read the end of chapter 13 for that one. The bad news is none of this dissipates the grief of Elisha and the other prophets in the moment. Even though his improbable request has been granted, Elisha screams out and rips apart his clothes in grief in verse number 12 as his teacher and master departs. And even though the other prophets confirm Elisha's new power and anointing in verses 13 through 18, they still go out anyway misguidedly searching for Elijah as if he's simply been plopped down on some distant mountaintop or deep in some verdant valley. So at every juncture of transition, my friends, there are conflicting emotions, ambivalent feelings of grief and promise commingled. As we examine this text, it strikes me that there are many changes amidst one constant. Elijah and Elisha journey from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan, which they then cross over. Elisha returns alone, presumably along a similar if not identical path. Elijah goes from life, if not to death, then at least to a new and eternal form of life. The company of prophets goes from prophetic to pathetic, from affirming to perhaps questioning. The chariot and horses of fire go from heaven to earth back to heaven. The whole movement of the text goes from sunset to sunrise, from pain and sorrow to the slow and gradual dawning of a new day. But all of that change occurs. All of that occurs amidst the one constant, which is evidenced by the parting of the waters of the Jordan in both directions. And that one constant is that God is still God. He's present and makes a way on the way out. He's present and makes a way on the way in. He is as present with Elisha as he was with Elijah. He was as present with the widow of Zarephath, her son, in that contest upon Mount Carmel, as he will be with the Shunammite woman, her son, and the leprous Syrian named Naaman. He's present in times good and in times bad. He's there at the moment of birth. He's there at the moment of death. He was, he is, and he is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. As the book of Hebrews puts it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Today's text is not the first time God has parted waters, and it won't be the last. He parted the Red Sea so His people could be freed of slavery in Egypt. 
He parted the river Jordan so that they could enter the promised land. He parted the river Jordan again so two prophets could depart. And He did it once more so that one could return. And if memory serves me correctly, when Jesus last stood in the river Jordan Himself to be baptized by John the Baptist, the waters themselves may not have departed. But do you remember what did? The heavens themselves parted right above His head. What the opening chapter of the Bible refers to as the firmament separating the waters above from the waters below. And there is no greater display of power and love, holiness and mercy, my friends, than that the very heavens would be burst asunder, rent asunder, so that the eternal God comes down to earth to bless and save His people. So in these Moments when you have to exit the land, know that you will eventually re-enter it. In those moments when you have to stare death in the eye, know that you will eventually experience rebirth and new life. Going backwards, regressing, or seemingly so, does not have the final word. Rather, going forward does. Like St. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, we press on. We press forward to make God's blessings our own, knowing that Christ Jesus has already made us His own. And the Bible says that He who began a good work within you will bring it to completion one day. So never fear. You may not see it now. You may not feel it now. But you will come back with a double share, a double blessing, a double portion, a double inheritance. When Job lost everything, what did he receive in the end? A double restoration of everything that he had lost. We will receive a double share when we cross back over. A double share of love. A double share of peace. A double share of joy. A double share of patience, kindness, and goodness. A double share of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A double share of faith, hope, and love. A double share of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might. A double share of righteousness. A double share of justice. A double share of life more abundant. A double share of the Holy Spirit and anointing and healing and blessing and consecration. You have asked a hard thing, Elijah says in verse 10. How fulfilling to have it granted in verses 11 and 12. Both for Elisha and for us. Asking a hard thing. And receiving it. Amen.